You're listening to The LaunchCast, the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth with me, your host, George Andriopoulos. It's like food for your ears. At this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. Launch sequence. Launch sequence activated. Launch sequence activated. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the LaunchCast, episode 211, Goosebumps, as always. We are back from a two-week hiatus with an interview, and it's going to be a killer one today. I'm so excited to see you guys again. Been cooking up some really good stuff. We're going to bring our guests on in a little bit, but first... It's the Launch Dad himself bringing you your favorite podcast on the planet. Oh, it's true. It's damn true. Right now, as the beat drops. Into the black hole. I never get tired of that theme music. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the LaunchCast. So we took a two-week hiatus. The way we did things in season one... Uh, I wanted to go as many episodes straight through. So season one, we did nine months of shows, 39 episodes straight through, and then we took a three-month hiatus. So I want to shake it up a little bit this season. Uh, I want to take less of a hiatus at the end of the year because three months, you know, I miss you guys. It's a long time to be away from you guys. So we're going to take periodic hiatuses here and there. We did a two-week hiatus uh, plus we did a LaunchCast reboot, which we've never done mid-season. We did all of those during the hiatus uh, last season, and we had Frank Shankowitz. Of course, we we did a, a reboot of that episode, and Frank was, um, you know, the the founder of the co-founder of the Make a Wish Foundation, who recently passed away. He was a friend of mine, uh, and so I wanted to honor him with replaying that episode because he dropped some nuggets. Man, he dropped some nuggets on how to change your life and how to do. Um, you know, important things. And that's, that's what this whole thing is about. So we're back talking about leadership real quick. I want to tell you guys, this episode's dropping on Monday. I don't even know what day that is. Is that April 1st? Maybe who knows? Uh, let's look at the old calendar. <coughs> Sorry. Monday's March 29th. This episode is dropping on Monday, March 29th. And I believe Wednesday, April 7th is going to be the first episode of my new podcast, which is called the Over My Dad Podcast. Uh, so that's me, Dave Thompson. So keep an eye on that. We're probably going to put links in the show notes uh, as the as the um, the weeks pass as we get closer to that show premiering. Uh, check it out. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be so much fun. I don't want to get too into it now. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about it next week. And we have weeks and weeks of interviews coming up. Uh, guests every single week coming up. And who knows, we may throw in some of those clubhouse segments. But you're not here for that. You're not here to hear me. You're here to hear our guest today. So I'm going to do a quick bio on our guest and then i'm going to bring that beautiful face on screen um eric morrow eric morrow my buddy 
my buddy since childhood. Eric is the founder and president of Creative Games, Inc. Eric was groomed in the event industry, working alongside numerous event planning industry legends for two decades. And he learned that work ethic, that dedication, that skill to guide his entrepreneurial spirit. Eric realized his dream to be a company president by the age of 30. Since then, Man, this dude has brought it with this company. It has become the leader in the social markets for games and activities. His ability to craft a unique and memorable experience has allowed Eric, <coughs> excuse me, the opportunity to work for clients that include Google, Credit Suisse, Barclays Bank, Heineken, Morgan Stanley, Pfizer, the COVID vaccine people, Men's Health, Bloomberg News, and a ton, ton more that he can't even tell you about because some of them are just that big in private. Uh, his passion for his company and this industry have not changed since the day he founded this company, and he is constantly honing his ability to reinvent and innovate, on top of which, kick-ass husband and dad, and I've known this dude for so many years. So let me let me bring this guy on screen. Hang on one sec. Let's see if we got all our ducks in a row here. Uh, yeah, nope, nope. That's not how we do that. Look at that. We're learning as we go. Boom. And we could publish this change. There we go. What's up? What's, What's up, George? Up? What's up? We're back to live mode. Look that's at that. A, New feature. That's a hell of a bio. What's happening, buddy? Thank you so much for being here today, man. No problem. No problem. Happy to be here, man. Yeah, man. Uh, so Good to so, get together. Yeah, as always, man. It's been a while since we got together. I last saw you uh, Christmas time. I stopped over at the crib because I wanted to drop off a bottle of a couple of bottles of the Andreopolis Pride. Well, uh, funny, funny story. Funny yeah. story about that. My brother. So you say keep it a year, and my brother was over, and he grabs this bottle. He goes, "Oh!" and he's about to open it, and Jen looks at it. She goes, "No, you can't open that one yet." We didn't even realize he. We almost drank that way too soon, so it's not cracked yet, but it was almost. It was. It's a good thing we uh, we saved that so far. Yeah, so so uh, there's an update on that. So it's actually um, I, I I created smaller bottles for for sampling okay. for me. Um, so as the months go by, like every month, I open up a small bottle just to test them all. So that the Cabernet Sauvignon is incredible already. Um, really? Yeah, the Zinfandel. That one is that's the premier reserve of all of them. That was made from like fresh grapes and the whole thing. Like that is the reserve bottle, and it is like it's not it's not supposed to mature for another few months, but it is like kick ass already. The other one in the middle, the purple rain, that was like it still needs some time. But those two bottles were like incredible. So if you want to pop one open, I would suggest probably that Cabernet. You could probably pop open now. But even that Zinfandel, they're they're all like they're coming of age good. It's been a fun, uh, <laughs> a fun little ha. hobby doing this. Well, I'm go. I'm gonna try the Cabernet, then probably Palm Sunday. Awesome. So that'll be this Sunday. I'll yeah. do that. Text me. Let me know. I'll let goes. you know how it is. Yes. So so uh, Eric is a buddy of mine. So you guys know I I don't I don't just get any guests on here. I only get guests really that I know very well because I know what they're bringing to the table. So Eric has been a buddy since uh, probably middle school, right? I would imagine. Definitely. Where'd you go? You went yes. to Albany Avenue, right? Yeah, Albany. Yeah. yeah. So, so probably since middle school, we've known Our, each other, and yeah. you know, and and you know, lost touch and reconnected and whatever. And so, um, Eric's doing amazing things right now. We're going to get into all of that, but I'm going to start with the question that we always start with here. Eric, are you a leader? Of course. Yes, I take pride in it. So, talk to me about leadership. What is your definition of leadership? Um. There's a bunch, but a big thing for me is I uh, would never ask anyone to do something I wouldn't do or haven't done. 
Um, that's a leader. I think that any leader that doesn't want to get their hands dirty is uh, not leading properly. I do. Uh, I think a leader is somebody that will take advice, listen to advice, um, but won't be scared to decline the advice. Um, so part of when I was opening my business, I opened it in, uh, I was planning it in 2008 and I opened it in March of 2009, uh, which before last year was by far the worst economic crisis we had. Um, and who decides yeah. to open up an extra entertainment company in the middle of just an, a housing market collapse and, and many respected and uh, people that really were really looking out for my own good and my own benefit said, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I took that advice and I did it anyway. Um, and it wasn't that I, th I took the advice the wrong way. It's that I, I had my own convictions and a leader needs to have their own convictions and uh, then uh, prove those people wrong. So I like advice. I like that. I like to push myself forward. Uh, I like to do every job from the bottom to the top. And then, uh, you know, you have to have broad shoulders, as they say. I'm a short guy with really big shoulders. So, yeah. Course. So, so I, I love that you brought this up because, um, you know, it's funny. We've, we've gotten so many, man, I've had so many leaders on the show and it's like every time we interview somebody, there's always somebody there's always a, a different opinion in terms of how to come at leadership and they're, they've all been valid. And it's amazing to hear all of these different, not only um, views on leadership, but also like the journeys that people have taken to get there. But like, you know, we, we talk about like, you know, I talked about Frank Shankowitz before from make a wish foundation. That's like servant leadership big time. It's just giving up everything for others. And then there are other people that have come in um, in a different respect, but you know, when you're a leader, when you're an entrepreneur, when you got to get, when you got to do the damn thing, right? Like there's a, there's just an element of a leader that you have to have that element where you could just take it on and do it if there's nobody there team wise to get it done. And so that, that's, that's, I love that you bring that up because I always try, I try in this phase of my life to, to, um, be as humble as possible in terms of, you know, how, how I get things done and to really put, you know, the, the credit on other people's shoulders. Right. But you know, there are still those times where I have to kick it into high gear where I'm like, fuck that. I got to do this. You know, like nobody's going to do it as good as me. And it's okay as a leader to acknowledge that you're, you have excellence in leadership that you're, you know, you're the one that's got to get it done. So yeah. And I know you, you have a team of people do that are amazing and you, you employ so many people and you, um, but this whole thing was your vision originally. And again, a lot of times this has gone on your shoulders. So I credit you for that big time, man, big time. Well, this last year, definitely uh, for me, you know, personally, uh, I thought, I don't know if this happens to you or other leaders. I always like to hear this, but um, there's a little of the, am I good enough? Am I the best? And I think that's a great leadership quality now that I think about it. And do I deserve all this? And, uh, you know, growing up through the industry, as you said in my bio, you know, you're working for people, you become a leader, but you're not the boss. So you're really working with other people and staying in the same industry and creating my own company. I had a lot of people come with me that loved me because they viewed me as a leader. Um, but I still didn't, couldn't in the very beginning, uh, believe myself as that leader. I just wanted to be one of the people with them. I didn't want to be the leader. I didn't want to be called the boss. Um, and, you know, it was almost humbling and a little nerve wracking for me. And then this last year, uh, when March, the pandemic hit, and I had to pivot and figure out ways to keep these people working and, you know, create online strategies and uh, make barriers and, and help things. 
that's when I really realized uh, as I was watching even respected leaders, you know, no names to be said, but people in my industry and around that just kind of crawled up, got under the covers and pretended the world had just ended and they were going to come back out when they could. Um, that's not what I did. So now that this pandemic is loosening up and the vaccines are out and like, as they say, um, I am ready and rocking because I was there the whole time yeah. and there's other people having trouble you know, getting there. And that's leadership. And I, I finally have, uh, I've embraced it and I'm fine saying it. And it's finally in even the humbling world, like, yes, I'm the leader, I'm the boss. I'm not scared to lead anyone. And uh, if you don't like it, then I'm the wrong guy for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, and that's it, that I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm the wrong guy for you. There's not always, yep. not every relationship works, right? And so, right, right. yeah, when we acknowledge that as leaders and just know that like, <laughs> listen, we shouldn't be working together. Like this is not yeah. for you. Yeah, I get that, man. Um, yeah, we're gonna get into all that too. I wanna yeah. start way back like we do on the show. I to turn the clock go, back go. back to, to to young Eric growing up on Long Island. So you grew up in like North Massapequa, Farmingdale area, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, North Massapequa, moved around a lot. We had a big, big family, um, you know, struggles, you know, uh, job loss for my dad. He worked at Grumman. Both my parents worked at Grumman. And if you know anything about Long Island in the 90s or late 80s, um, Berlin Wall came down, uh, defense budget went to nothing and uh you know grumman just basically left and at the time i, I think grumman was 60 or 70 percent of the uh, jobs on long island yeah. so you know we got hurt really bad and a lot of people went into problems and uh, no jobs to be had so our house was foreclosed on so it was very uh hard living and moving around with that many brothers and sisters and uh, i've worked and when people they laugh at me but i'm for, for real i've had a full-time job uh since i was in third grade I worked with my dad every day after school, third, fourth, fifth, some type of job. And it wasn't for me. It was just to keep the house, you know? Yeah. So yeah. working was always part of what I did. Yeah. So it was never an issue. Yeah. And for the, for those that don't know Grumman, Grumman is a company in the aerospace industry. So when you see like those old movies where like the entire town was like employed by the mill, like the coal mine or whatever, like that's Long Island. Long Island was 60 or 70% of Long Island was employed by Grumman in the aerospace industry. And they were building, you know, planes and whatever and, and military contracts. And when all that changed, yeah, Grumman became like a non, uh, a non figure here on Long Island for a long time. Um, so yeah, man. And, and I want to talk about that for a little, so you were one of seven, you had a big, big family. Um, and it was tough for you. You know, I've, I, I always try and do this research on on our guests beforehand. It was uh, very interesting doing the research for you because not not all of this is out in a public way. Um, I have to go onto like Facebook posts and stuff like that, and then <laughs> obviously I have to draw the line between what's personal and you don't want to share versus like part of the story that matters. So um, a few things stuck out to me, and I and I'm I'm sure you'll be okay with with sharing this stuff just because we're talking leadership. But um, the first thing, and this is something that after knowing you for so many years, I I didn't know this, but what was funny was I remember specifically I was actually speaking at a conference in Manhattan a couple of years ago, and I remember waiting for an Uber to take back to Penn Station, and I go on Facebook and I saw this post that you put up. And I had never known anything about this. Um, so this was a post where you talked about uh, you were harshly bullied by by teachers and more. Uh, 
in elementary school, in Catholic school. Uh, your mother went to work early uh, in the morning, and your father did, and you had to get yourself dressed for school, um, tie a tie, which wasn't easy for a kid, and, and you only had two pairs of the green slacks and shirts, and so they mm. were washed every day, and they, they became worn out. And you were getting, like, demerits at school for not dressing properly when, meanwhile, you guys were struggling to even stay in your homes. And I think there was – I don't remember if it was this post or another one that I read that day, but you talked about, like, being bullied as a kid just because of your clothing and the way you used to dress and stuff like that. Um, you know, looking back on, on today, we're going to – we don't want to get too far ahead quickly because I want to focus on this moment. What kind of effect did this have on Eric today, you know, living through that? Um, beneficial. I, I hate to tell people that, you know, because bullying isn't good, but beneficial. Um, I mean, when you grow up that, first of all, my parents did a great job, great job of not allowing me to understand that we were poor. Yeah. So how crazy is that, that I lived in? The problem is, is, you know, uh, not that this is a good thing for anyone, but if you live in a poor area, and everyone's kind of poor with you. It's not as hard as when you live in a more affluent area and you're poor. So my parents were really doing a solid for us and they stepped up and they moved us out of Brooklyn and they knew that they were going to struggle, but they were going to get it done for us to get us into the middle-class world of Long Island. Right. So we're here and I don't realize that, you know, I don't have as much money as the next kid. And, and, you know, there was other kids that didn't have a lot of money as well. It wasn't like I was the only one, but we didn't know. Um, I started to realize as I got older, looking back, like at the demerits and the pants and all that stuff, I didn't understand why, you know, mom, didn't do my wash that day because she had seven kids and she was getting up for work at 4 a.m. And, you know, I'm pulling a green, you know, the, you only have, you know, Catholic school clothes and I'm pulling them out of the hamper um, and I'm putting them on and I'm not tucking my shirt in and there's no one there to tell me, Eric, you got to do this, you know, so you're in second grade and you're that kid. Now, the, the good thing was I've always had this personality. I've always been outgoing. So uh, by being bullied, it wasn't uh, a bullying where I felt demeaned or or lesser because my dad wouldn't allow me to feel that way um he must have had some innate ability to like teach me he always said that people are going to try you your whole life and i think that was part of his vietnam background and he basically gave me and i mean cut this out if you have to but he he told me straight up this was his biggest piece of advice to me and it stuck with me my whole life yeah. he said uh, you're going to be short because your mom's 411 he was six foot um god rest both their souls he said but if i ever find out and this is, he said it crass, so I'm going to say it the way he said it. Yeah. If I ever find out that uh, you bullied someone because you think you could beat them up, I'm going to beat the shit out of you worse than they could ev than you could ever beat them up. <laughs> but if I ever find out you back down from a bully because you're scared they're going to beat you up, I'm going to beat you up worse than they can beat you up. Yeah. Okay. And now as a kid, you're like, what the hell? Right. Now you got to like really think about that. And he would reiterate this over and over. And basically it was when someone tries you, you put them in their place real quick and they won't try you again. And no one else will, that was their will. And if you bully people, you're the asshole <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going to make sure that you're not that guy. So he really taught me, it was really something that sticks with me to this day. Um, so I think that the bullying as it started, it stopped pretty quick. The real problem was when you start to realize you're the different kid in school. And that's why it was liberating. Um, so liberating when I went to Albany Avenue in fifth grade. Um, it was a restart. 
I yeah. wasn't the smelly kid. I had my brother's clothes and all that stuff. They're all these older brothers. So I had this clothes. And when I went to fifth grade, it was in weeks, I became one of, if not the most popular kid in school. Um, and I stuck with it and it was like a, a rebirth. And I just, I ran with it and I had the confidence and I love sports and all that stuff. And it was, it was great, but I didn't realize until I was in that role where I was before that, Yeah, which well, is crazy. It's funny because fatherhood sort of does that to us, right? Like we, we can be introspective and you look back at your childhood and you're like, oh shit, that's what yeah. happened. <laughs> exactly. And then you then that's when you start the, the respect for your parents level goes up to a level that's insane as yeah. you get older. Yeah, for sure. I, I see even yeah. with my kids, like when they go through something and they're, and they're struggling, you look back and you're like, oh man, like you're living what I went through, you know? And so you, you want them, you want to give that advice where you can sort of help them through. But at the same time, you're like, if I didn't go through this myself, I wouldn't have figured this out. Cause I, I went through that same stuff, man, in different ways. Right. And it made me so conscious of, of certain things. Like it affects you later on bully. Like I was never bullied to, to the degree where, it was physical or bad, but I always got the, Hey man, I have dry scalp and eczema. So I was always getting the, the snow and the, the dandruff thing and the big nose and the, and the whatever. And you know, and Preaching then when, the you're, choir. <laughs> when, when you're old enough to kind of make a difference, it's funny because you sort of go to that other extreme. Like for me, that bullying, bullying, bullying to me, like when I was old enough to know, you know, I'm 20 years old, 19, 20, 21, and you're like, no, you know what? I'm a decent looking dude and I got my shit together and let me, and all of a sudden sort of reversed. And like, for me, I actually became a bully in my twenties and early, you know, leading into 30. And I'm like, until I realized when they're like, shit, man, I just like reversed the whole cycle again. Like, what am I doing here? You know? So yeah, it's, it's crazy how those instances of your life just have such a, such oh, 100%. an effect on you. Yeah. Fifth, um, I remember fifth, sixth grade, I definitely was a little bit of a bully, but I learned quick that that was not the way I wanted to be. So, yeah. So, so I want to ask you, so you mentioned sports before, and I know you're a big sports guy. Um, you know, when you look back at, at your experiences, you know, fourth grade and, and before, uh, and how you sort of didn't fit in because of whatever was going on. Um, do you think that sports became such a passion for you because it sort of unified you and put you on the same playing field as like everybody else, like you were just part of the gang or was it really like the competitiveness of sports? And uh, Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a threefold answer to that. And I think sports are my life. Yeah. Um, I owe my life to sports. And I mean that so sincerely that I believe in it so heavy for kids and I don't care what level they're at. Um, one, I was the fifth boy out of five and I was, the you know, six out of seven and all my older brothers were not into sports and my dad actually despised sports. He knew nothing about them. And my way to set myself apart on the Long Island, not Guido area, which is where we were, um, was I'm going to be sports. And I fell in love with the Mets, absolutely fell in love with the Mets and they became my best friend. Yeah. So um, every night, every day, I mean, I watched, I watched Mets however I had to. When we didn't have the money, uh, to have Sports Channel back in the day, the Mets were on Channel Three, which was Sports Channel for half the games, and then they were on WWOR on Channel Nine, channel which nine, I yeah. lived for. Yeah, and uh, you know, I would I would beg, borrow, and steal to go f to people's houses that I didn't know to watch the game in their living room because they had Sports Channel. 
That's how much I love the Mets. And my son is named Carter after Gary Carter. Um, And that brought me into all the other sports. And that brought me to friendship. And that brought me to the one thing I'll say is I lived across the street uh, from a pizza parlor when I was growing up, Lisa's Italian Kitchen. And uh, there was a box painted on the wall before we ever moved there. And that was my home base. And every day after school, uh, I went and I threw up against that wall for hours, three, four hours a day. And I became a master fielder and an unbelievable pitcher because I worked at it just to do that. And um, I, I thank I thank sports. So that's one. Uh, the leadership part, million percent. You know, you start to become good in sports and people start taking what you say and, and all that stuff. But it changed my life and it made me popular and it made me meet people. And it really um, assimilated me into what Long Island kids were like versus what Brooklyn kids were like. Yeah. And it changed my life. So, yeah. Yeah, totally different dynamic. I grew up actually younger. I grew up in Flushing. I moved here uh, in third grade. We moved to Farmingdale and, and oh, there you go. Memorial, and yeah. So I and I and I had roots in Queens for years because I worked in Queens for geez, like thirteen years of my life. Um, you know, during college and and after, and so yeah, totally different dynamic. And and this place that we grew up in. I know I talk about this place so much on the show and in my life, but yeah, it's these experiences, right? Like you had. The, the pizza box on the wall, like that's a memory for you. Um, we we kind of all had these magical memories here in in this town, and not everybody had the same experiences, but uh, it's a special place, you know. It's a special place, and really, for me, it it it's what built me into the person that I am today. And still, you know, I'll never leave this place. I hope I never leave this place. Um, you know, in terms of my business and and where I live, and uh, yeah, it's special, and it brought me friendships that I'll you know, I'll never lose. And, and, you know, people like you that I know, and, um, we do good things here, man. And we do, we, we, we both grew up here. We, we both graduated Farmingdale high school in, in 1997. Uh, and then you started your, your journey to college and I know you finished up at SUNY Albany, right? I actually never finished my degree there. Um, but I did finish up there. My mother actually developed cancer my last year there. Um, but part of her thing was I was going to be the first one to graduate college in my whole family. Mm -hmm. And she really wanted to see it happen, but I wasn't destined to finish that year. But she forbade me to come home, even though I knew that she was really sick and I wasn't gonna have much time with her. So I was in this really, really tough spot um, at that time where it was right after 9-11 actually, she developed the cancer and I'm up in Albany and all my family's home and I'm getting like bits and pieces of her cancer treatment and I'm really trying to come home and see her. And I just didn't do very well to finish. And it, by that time, she passed away in June of that year. And I was literally 19 credits short. And if I'd done the right way, I would have been maybe six credits short. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't. And I, you know, my dad needed me to help again. And I had to take over the house and all that stuff. And the rest is history. But I say it all happens for a reason. So, yes, Albany is my home base. But I, I don't never have that degree. I wish yeah. I had that degree. I yeah. might get it one day. We'll see. Yeah, man. Um, so I, w- I want to talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So I was curious. Uh, what, so what was the plan, first of all, when you were in college professionally for you? Uh, business communications. I always I loved communications and I use it to this day. Um, I was definitely up in the air. I wasn't one of these kids who had any idea what I was definitely going to do. I really thought it was going to be sports, sports, sports broadcasting, take business, take communications. Um, but then I realized just how hard it really is to get into that field and, uh, you know, the level that you need to get to. And, uh, 
English, maybe uh, vocabulary, I'm okay, but in the writing form, I am brutal. Uh, and you can tell by just some of my Facebook messages that you probably had to read read <laughs> recently. Um, so, you know, there, there, and there, and is, and your, and uh, don't even ask me about those things, okay? I missed first and fourth grade. I told you about that. Um, and the best thing ever is Twitter and the Facebook and the shortening and no one caring about any of that anymore. It was like made for me. Um, but that's the world and that's where I'm at. And uh, that was... That was where I was going, but then everything changed and I was just so dynamic. I really was dynamic. I didn't even realize how dynamic I was in my field that I was working to get me through school. And I just was requested by everybody. And we're talking about, George, you know, the, the clientele that I deal with, yeah. the NDAs that I have. These people um, requested, wanted me at their events and stuff. And I was a kid and it started to like, really, I really realized like, wait, um, this is, this is probably where I need to be. Yeah. So when I got out of college, it's where I went and I made it, you know, for me again, right. Bad timing, but right after 9-11. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's where I was at. Yeah. So, so you were in the event industry there. Um, I want to sidebar from that for a minute yeah. and, and talk about a couple of things. So uh, you mentioned before, so June 7th, 2002, right? That's when your mom. Yeah. 2002. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, I, I always, and I think that's what, what brought me closer to you, like seeing, watching like Facebook posts, like getting to know, I never really knew you well. We were never in the same circle in high school or anything like that, but sort of getting to know you through social media and watching these posts over the years, I was like, oh man, uh, this dude's a good dude and family man and whatever. And particularly the posts about your mom always got me, man. Very emotional posts always. So, um... Uh, I, I know you called her your Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Mm -hmm. yes. Um And uh, I, I read a post where you said your mother was sick and, and you knew it was a matter of time and you had a rare one-on-one -on -one moment with her uh, and you told her that you regretted none of, uh, of your time together on Earth and you loved her fully every day. Uh, and the only regret that you had was that she was never going to meet your wife. Um, and, and a funny thing happened. She told you that she had met your wife already. Um, and so now, so now Jen, your wife is another Daler, another person that went to school with us a little bit younger. Um, and you guys had dated already, but you had broken up for almost three years at that point. Right. Yes. So what yes. was, uh, what, so when Obi-Wan gave you this, this uh, bomb, what were you is, thinking? Uh, um, she never said well, a name. She never said, she never Jen. said a name. Yeah. No, she didn't. She yeah. never said, Jen. I was dating somebody else and she liked the girl, but she knew me. My mom had an innate ability to know me better than I knew me, yeah. um, which was crazy. And she really did. And, um, you know, that's exactly how it went down. And I said, uh, you know, that's the only regret I'll have. And she said, I already met your wife. And I hadn't spoken to my wife now in three years. And if we did speak, it was really through, um, like, just because we had to. We saw each other. Um, and her brother happened to be my best friend, which is crazy. And we went to Albany together, right. um, which is a whole other story. But uh, so I immediately became a big boy and stopped acting like a child and realized that breakups happen. And I, I messaged her and I said, you know, and this is before texting. So I, I think I called her at her house maybe, or maybe I called her on her phone. I don't remember. How and I just you. said, Hey, my mom's in really bad shape. And she said, I know. I said, but you know, you should come by and you should just say goodbye. You know, that's really where it was at. And Jen did, she came by and, you know, we saw each other and they had their own conversation. And to this day, I don't know exactly what she, my mother said to her, but in, to the basically like, just look out for Eric. I would think it was about that. And then, um, by the end of the summer, we had both broken up with our girlfriend and boyfriend that we had, um, that she was in a pretty good relationship, I was too. And we got back together and, you know, as they say, the rest is history. 
three kids and married 15 years in April. So she's my high school sweetheart. And we didn't have to go, we didn't have to deal with college together. <laughs> Best thing ever for both of us. And then we're together, you know? So uh, that's how that went down. Um, but the funny story is this is, I don't know if you know this one, George, but yeah. this is, I'll tell you this. Um, so when people ask Jen how she got engaged, she has to tell them in a cemetery. Yeah. So the reason why is I just told you that four story, but um, I've never been to my mother's grave before or since. Um, I don't believe that's where she is. I know that that's where, you know, her body was buried. But uh, I said, Jen, I want to go to the cemetery uh, and see my mom. And when we got there, I said, it's only fitting that she brought us back together and she should be the only one with us when we get engaged. So I actually got engaged to Jen at my mother's headstone and she has that story it's the sweetest most beautiful story ever yeah, yeah. with a really long background to explain why it's cool that she got engaged in the cemetery oh man that's crazy i love that story. yes i yeah. love that story um yeah so so you guys got married everything was rolling you know later on three kids of course uh dakota uh carter and harper um now between this time and and 2009 because we'll get to that in a minute um what was professional life like? What were you doing during that point? Um, I was running a different company, a very high-end company. Well, they, okay, learn high-end company. I was making them a high-end company. When I was there, they were doing work for high-end business companies, but they weren't delivering it the way I really thought they could. And um, I that's why I guess I started to become so well-received and requested because I was upping everything to a new level every time I was there. And I was creating extra entertainment games because what I realized – uh, unintentionally was that uh, in the industry I was in, in the extra entertainment market with games and stuff, everyone was buying the same stuff and it was really just about who they knew and they were delivering the same stuff the same way. It just was what it was. Um, so it didn't matter. If you're getting whole milk, you're getting whole milk, you maybe fall in love with a brand and then that's your whole milk. Yeah. But if that they're out of that brand, you take a different whole milk. And I realized if we were to just make things just different or just create things and do it, you know, we could really kill it. And that's what happened. I started to invent extra entertainment options. And then that blew up. And then I started getting that crowd. And then I started to really, uh, as Dakota coined it, when she was only one, I, I am, instead of an event planner, I'm an invent planner. Ah. And she just did it by accident. So that's really what happened. And I really have, I, I turned the whole industry on its ear. So I became the vice president of that company and really took it over and brought that to, to a sustainable level to the point that now that company and my company are A and B in the world. And it's because I brought that company there and then I took my own company there. And that's where we're at. So so 2009, you talked about what the the, the climate was like, right? It was a down yeah. economy. It was right after the, the housing market crash. I don't know how other areas of the country were at that moment, but I remember New York in that moment. Um, and I, I, I bought my first house three months before the crash, so that was fun. It was fun to, to see that my down payment completely negated three months later. My house is worth like uh, like 60% of what I bought it for. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that, that was the economy at the time. Uh, Creative Games Inc. started in a very small office with four white walls, two phones, and two computers. This is like the same story as my company. It was me and a part-time assistant renting two desks in somebody else's office. Um, but now you guys are are an incredible company. So walk me through the process of how the idea came about to move on and, and start creative games and how you guys started rolling. Well, um, the company I was with, my mother actually worked there. She basically forced me to work there with her. So he was, uh, he took a liking to me. 
he he generally was he he really was the nicest human being ever, and I still love him and will talk to him to this day. Um, he just went into some financial problems himself. And unfortunately, the timing again for me, but fortunately, was the housing market collapse, uh, newlywed and a, ba a baby. And he couldn't pay me. And he was actually not just not paying me, he was actually owing me. So it just became really untenable. And I realized with all the stress and everything that was happening, if I was going to do it, I needed to just do it for myself. So it really came more out of uh, desperation. Um, as they say, the universe the universe moves you in those areas. And I realized like, you know what, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it now before my daughter is 10 and I can't do it. Right. Yeah. So I just, I said, I'm doing it. I don't care. And I'll make it happen. And, um, I didn't do anything shady. I just basically said, I'm done. Um, I did have uh, awesome strategic investors. I said, I did shark tank before shark tank because I had a lot of people come out and I actually took the lesser amount of money for the investment, but I wanted a strategic partnership and I got that and it was a genius move because uh, it opened up doors. So I used to say, um, when I, when I knew that this was kind of happening, the mo the biggest competition, I went right at them like a leader would. And I just kept on handing them their hat. I just kept on, as I'm building this business, I'm just destroying them, taking every client from them. And they had to recognize who I was. And then they came to me and they said, we want to hire you. And I said, no one's hiring. I said, I'm going out on my own. If you want to be my partner, that's how that could work. Yeah. And that's basically how that went. And then I became with them. So when I used to do that, I used to say, I used to go at Cipriani's 42nd Street. I used to go, I was all these venues, but I had to walk through the kitchen and I had to hide, you know, and I had to come through. And as soon as I, you know, opened up my business and it was creative games and I had this cachet behind me, um, I didn't have to walk through the kitchen anymore. Yeah. I had to walk right through the front door with a shaking in a hand and a, this is Eric and a, this is this. And it was just that different. And take that with knowing where I came from and then with what I could do and my, my, my network and the people that just followed me without me even calling company was profitable from the first month. Yeah. Never, never. The only year that I did not have a profitable year was last year. Yeah, I mean, couldn't have an event. I mean, yeah, that was a exactly. tough year. <laughs> so that was, uh, events were hard to come by. Yeah. So, so uh, I, I love the story of of the rise and how this whole thing happened. I want to talk a little bit about. Um, not the process behind running a company. I, I've seen your operation there. You know, it, it's incredible. You guys. So what I love and, and being a business consultant, you know, that I'm an operations guy. I know all about what it takes to not only run the business the right way, but to make sure your clients and your colleagues and your vendors and all these people understand that too. We've actually been in situations where I was consulting for other event companies. We, I would be there just on a, on a, a, a discovery day, right? Like a discovery mission to watch things go by. And you're like pointing out things that other people are doing wrong because um, they're not, you know, it's, it's not the professional look that you're looking for or whatever. Right. And so I knew at that moment that you knew your shit in terms of how a company needs to operate and how a company needs to show up uh, at an event or whatever it is that, that a company does. Right. So I know, you know, your stuff with that. I'm more concerned with the creative process. That's what's always just enamored me about your company. Like I, I, 
I had a couple of years where it, it was strange. Like I got hired by one uh, uh, event company to consult and then sort of they heard about me and I, I wound up being hired by a few companies. So there was like a two year period where I personally was consulting exclusively in the event industry. And it was fun to see. And guys, by the way, if you if you don't know about the back end of the event industry, it is the fucking craziest industry you will ever <laughs> yeah, see. It's, it's insane. It's insane, it's insane how it works, but it's so cool to watch to watch everything happen. Now, Eric's company, and I'll let him describe what what specifically it is they do. And of course, we're gonna have like links in the show notes and and all kinds of stuff later on. But um, Eric's company takes a creative look at at these events right they they reinvent what it, uh, an event is supposed to look like and just turn the thing on its ear and that's why they are the way they are you know th- this is called the most creative game ever played the episode is because it's creative games inc and in in reality this is what eric did so i want to hear about that creative process for how you can take you know like this screwdriver you look at it and you see something completely different uh, and then you yes. bring it to an event and it's a it's a hit. Talk to me about that. Uh, um, okay. So it's not, it's not, it's, I don't, I, some people have one way that they can become creative. I am not that. So it's, uh, I need feedback and then I just see things differently. I always have, I don't know why. Um, so, you know, I really, first thing I did was like you, and it's hard for me cause I'm a talker, but I observe very well. Um, even though I'm not, I deserve kids. I love children. I just have to have a kid personality. And, um, I observe kids at cocktail hours. So when I'm doing bar and bat mitzvahs, and I say this this way, because I do high end corporate events, I do crazy everything, but every amazing extra entertainment option starts at the bar mitzvah level. The stuff I do at the corporate level is three years old in the bar mitzvah world. Yeah. Just so you know, it's yeah. that insane. So I'm the bar mitzvah king. I was written about in the New Yorker for it organically. And it has nothing to do, even though corporate is the this and the that, everything starts from the bar mitzvah level. And the yeah. reason why is it's a, uh, a, a network of 100 kids in the same school district all having a party in the same year. And can you imagine? One, these, the families are great. But two, they start to really say, I can't have another bored kid. And now I got to get a little higher and I got a little higher and I got to get a little different and I got to change it and I got to do this. And sometimes it's challenging, but they'll come to me and they'll say, I want to have a basketball party, right? I cannot have the same basketball item for 20 kids that are going to see it every weekend for for a full year. So what do you do? You got to figure out a different way to skin the cat, as they say. And the idea is that I started to create basketball in every dimension, every way. So that's how you start to do that. So I become creative. How can I make you play basketball, but it not be basketball? And how can I make the 80 kids that are coming that hate basketball still like this party? So you take basketball and you make it connect four. And now you have basketball connect four. And then you take basketball and you make a graffiti. And now at least I like graffiti. And then you take basketball. And I'm only using basketball because it's just so. Sure. so you make basketball and you turn it into a foosball table. You make basketball and you make a basketball court. You make basketball and you make it a small thing. You make a pop shot. You change it. You make it LED. You custom color the whole thing. So the bat mitzvah girl who wants only pink now has an entire pink basketball court. So that's how you make it go over and over. So everything starts from there. Then I see things that no one else sees. And it's crazy. I thought other people saw it, but they don't see it. And sometimes it's almost too easy for me. So I actually don't value it. And then I realize, wow, 
No one saw it that way. Um, so for instance, like James Corden's The Carpool Karaoke. Yep. Um, I saw that. I was like, that's awesome. That'd be so cool. And I thought, there's no way I'm getting a car into these venues. There's no way. And then what happens? I'm like, well, you know, no one else would be crazy enough to actually buy a car and cut it into five pieces. So gut the engine, rewrap it, and then build it back inside where it looks like a real car and then have the kids sing carpool karaoke, but that's not good enough. I still want the top to go up and down. I need it the whole inside green because I need everybody to look like they're driving while they're singing in the car. So now people are walking into this venue in a Chrome Mini Cooper that's got green screen, that's a video, that's a car in a door that they that their, their grandma barely got through. And they're saying, how is the car in here? And that's the stuff. And as I started to do that, I started to realize like, you know what? I'm just going to build the craziest stuff I think of and they're going to want it. And then I see trends and I see the end of night stations and I see the way stuff goes and I see the giveaways and I see the, I go to Disney and Jen's always like, you just, can you just enjoy it? And I'm like, I'm trying, but like, look how they did that. And, and they stuff in Disney that's like less tech than the yeah. way I would do it. Yeah, 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 and I always yeah. think to them, like, maybe I should call them. <laughs> and just like maybe they give me a job and I can really kill it for them because I could help them with some stuff that they got. But yeah. that's how it happens. It's just uh, people talk to me. A lot of kids are very smart. Parents are very smart. They do their research. They know when they, they meet me that there's going to be a bill. You know, they know they're not coming, you know, the cheap one, but they know I'm going to deliver what I promised them. And there's sometimes I have these unbelievable ideas that I'm like, I literally have to say to them, just, just trust me. Yeah. Um, and I never say that to the first time client. Never. I, uh, I always say it's like a, you have two or three kids, but I love the ones with three because yeah, I get three bar bat mitzvahs. Yep. But the first time is like 22 meetings, 16 ideas and all these different things. And like, they're always scared. And then day of they're Oh my God, you're the best. And then second bar mitzvah, they call me up like a year out, you know, they have me booked and they say, well, we're going to talk here are ideas and we want you to do this and tell us, you know, what you think. And then the third kid, they literally call me like three months. They Just say, here's it. my budget. Um, and just tell me what's coming. Yeah. And that's how it works. And I love that. And that's like with my corporate clients that become residual and my, my colleges, that's what they do at yeah. this point. They say, this is the budget. Here's our idea. You get crazy. And they'll, they'll tell me some things that are must haves or that they want, or that maybe they don't want, but they let me rock with it. And those are the best parties because yeah. I, I know what everyone wants. I see it. I know it. This episode is sponsored by the new cohort of the Leadership Experience. Unconventional leadership brought to you by yours truly, the launch dad himself, George Andriopoulos. Our new cohort is starting soon. And not only do we still have the same four courses, that's right, the public thought leadership track, the career leader track, the entrepreneurship track, and of course the podcast experience, we have our first graduate level up level inimitable the newest one-on-one -on -one leadership class this is for not only if you have taken the leadership experience core class before and are ready to graduate to the newest level but for those that have experienced leadership and want to take it to a new level inimitable is for you i'm not even going to talk about it in this commercial you're gonna to have to contact me check out the leadership exp dot com for details and to sign up for information inimitable is coming at you dm me for more info later guys so there's a couple of things i love about that one is that um 
Man, you know, when we talk about like excellence in leadership, it, it's just something that uh, when you get to a certain level and that you know you're the guy, right? Like you're the guy and and there are points, where, and, and this could be very narcissistic, but there are some times when you are good at something and you can actually say to yourself, like, I am the best at doing this. It may not be true, right? Whatever. But you know that you're putting 150% into it and that your product is going to be badass and that you are going to do a good job for them because that's what the, the whole thing is about. Um, in this industry, you know, whether you call it bravado or ego or whatever, like it's it's necessary because there has to be a flair. When somebody comes to you and basically the point is, I want to have the best party of all my friends turning 13, you know, all right. You know, give me your budget and let's turn it on, right? Um, the the piece in the New Yorker that you mentioned, which, by the way, I remember it blew my mind when it came out. So this was uh, uh, May 2015. Emma Allen uh, was the author. It was in the New Yorker, the fucking New Yorker. Like, if you're not from New York or don't understand, like, the New Yorker, that's a huge deal. So at, at face value, the article was really about, like, showing these amazing, like, big-budget bar and bat mitzvahs, right? At face value. Yeah. But a business person, an entrepreneur is going to look at it and go like, I just saw Eric's sales pitch through this thing. Like, this is how Eric sells a party. This is his whole process. Um, and there's something you mentioned about being a big kid. So I want to read a piece of this. So you said, uh, most clients I can't even talk about for the biggest of the big. Morrow said recently at a Midtown office where he meets with his preteen customers. Uh, most of my clients are top one percenters. And they offer me jobs. You could run my company, but I'm good with what I do. I'm a big kid. I'm Tom Hanks from big. Right. And that's really what you consider yourself when you do yes. this stuff, like doing this for a living. I mean, you've figured out a way to, to enjoy what you do, to have a blast every day, be a kid and still not only, you know, make a successful future for yourself and your family, but the people that you take care of, which is a ton of people a ton of people that you take care of. Um, so I, I love that man. And I, I know that your inspiration just comes from not only fr from you being a big kid, but you see inspiration in everything you do, your, your kids and going to Disney and, and whatever. And everything is just one big idea, which is um, it's incredible. I want to talk for a second before we move back to some other stuff uh, about competitive drive, how much of the, and we're in a safe space right now, right? Nobody's listening. It's just me and you. How much of this, <laughs> is competitive drive. Like I, I am, man, I do things for clients because I want to be of service and I want to help them. Right. But, but there's a, there's something inside of me, this fire that I, I can't turn off sometimes that just, I, I'm in competition with myself. I just want to be the best at what I do. I know you're a competitive guy. How much of the success that you've had is based on competitive drive? Uh, I couldn't quantify it. <laughs> it's beyond. I can't. I refuse to lose. The problem that I have, and it's my success, I think, is I promise you, George, in my life, I have never, ever delivered a product to a client that I didn't critique harsher than they did. Yeah. I don't care what it is. I've never been fully happy. I cannot, I cannot see all the positives. I only see the things I would change and it's very successful and it's great because I see it. I want it different. I never want it the same. And I see things and I'm mad at myself for not seeing it earlier or whatever it may be. Um, the second, so that's my competitive, just with me. The second is being told no for so long 
and you can't, you can't do it. You're not going to do it. People say that because you know what? Everyone wants to be right. And if you say you're not going to make it many times, especially to a poor kid, you're probably right 95% of the time. So I want them to fail. I want them to fail and have to look at me and eat that crow. Um, and I heard it a lot that I was going to be, you know, through school, not being the greatest of school kids, um, being, you know, just me and outgoing and just, just what I was. There was some teachers that couldn't handle it. And I get it because I get it now. I mean, it, but if I would have been broken, I would have, you know, whatever. So that's part of my competition is proving them wrong, proving the people who told me no wrong, proving myself wrong sometimes. And then, um, you know, my industry in Long Island, you know, where we are, there's some other good companies out there. And when you said before, you said, you know, it's awesome to know you're the best, right? And I never have said that. I People tell me, a lot of people tell me, and they say, and I actually get a little, I don't get shy, but I'm like, because I value my competition. I know there's some good guys out there that are really doing stuff. And I know why they're good. Right. There are other younger ones than me. And they, I trained two of them. Yeah. All right. And, and I respect the hell out of them and they know stuff. And I'm like, damn it. I got to learn that. And I'm going to learn that. Wow. That's good. And I always give them credit. I'll never put them down. I always tell other people like you're that kid's good. He knows what he's doing, you know, but I also make sure they realize like, you're not going to get from them, even with his great ideas, what you're going to get from me. Right. And then, and they, they realize quickly. But yeah. it's all competitive. It's a hundred percent in anything I do. I don't let my kids win up the stair race. Um, there's nothing. I will never let them win anything. If they beat me, they beat me fair and square. And I will. I'll rub it in all day long <laughs> if I beat them, and I love it. And that's how we do it. I love that. And, and people yeah. should know, by the way, this is a cutting industry, especially here in New York, where we are. Um, it, it, it's a crazy industry, but it is a highly competitive industry. So I've always said this, like, look, I'm, I'm all about, you know, feelings and, and making sure that everybody feels special and, and whatever. Right. Um, but when you choose to be in an industry that is a cutting competitive industry, you can't just always be the nice guy. You can't always, it, it can't be about people's feelings always. And, and whatever, there are moments where you just have to be the best and you have to put that forward and beat other people. And that competitive drive, you know, being in an industry like that, it's, it's everything you have to have it in order to be successful. So yeah, I definitely commend you for that. Um, you know, does it's, it's not always the best for the soul, right? Like it, it it's tough. It's tough, man. I, I completely get it. And I came up in, in a very competitive field in the first half of, of my career, especially on the ownership and, uh, and management side of things. And uh, it took its toll on me, but, um, to sort of learn those lessons and, and bring them, you don't always have to bring those lessons to work. As long as you're bringing those lessons to your family and your kids, you know, that that's what really matters. Teach them the lessons you learn. Um, speaking of, I want to go back to, to family for a minute. So, you know, we'll, we'll fast forward, no specific time here. Um, company is successful. You're doing your thing. And by the way, you've always given back. I've been uh, involved in a couple of, of things that you've given. We won't get into specifics because it's not what this is about. But um, I've been involved in a couple of things, watched you give back in, in so many ways to our community, to friends, to, to people in need. Um, you know, you, you've employed half the people in our town uh, <laughs> at one point or another, you know, part time or, or whatever, or full time. Um, 
You know, and so I know for you, and one of the things I admire most about, probably the thing I admire most about you is just you as a husband and a dad and, and a family man. Uh, talk to me about how special, not not just, you know, the, the, the wife and kids are, but the, the whole family. How special is that to you and what, is, what does family mean to you as a man? Oh, um, all, everything that we said ahead of this really means little compared to what you're what you just brought up family to me um you know i i grew up a very tight knit family we love each other um we have our fights obviously but when your mom passes away and she was the center point of our family uh, my brothers and sisters we all made a deal like right then and there i don't think it was verbal i think it was just it just happened like there will be nothing nothing that'll happen in our lives that'll keep us from being together and we've stuck to it, man. We are the closest. My nieces and nephews could be my kids. You know, I have 17 nieces and nephews and then three step uh, nieces at this point because my dad got remarried and that family, they love us that we're together. And my dad's now passed away and we're still, you know, like family. Um, and then my, my gen side, I mean, I grew up with them. They're there. So everyone has in-laws, but they're not in-laws to me. I know them from fifth grade. Like who knows their in-laws from fifth yeah. grade? My mother-in-law is my mother. I, yeah. I, I don't, I hate the term mother-in-law, but it's the only way to describe her. Um, her Jen's little brother, who's a monster in himself. And one day you should put him on this because his change is beyond um, as a bodybuilder. Like I'm just so proud of all of them. And then, um, you know, it's how that works. And um, the family aspect for me is what I want. So you said before, you looked at my Facebook and you love my posts. And um, I always started with the Facebook is going to be my diary to my children. Because I always have questions for my mom that I can't really always answer. And she, you know, I don't have many people to go to and she doesn't have a lot of family left. They were just a little bit older and I've lost so many. Um, and there's really a lot of holes missing. And now my dad's gone. So I don't have these answers. And I always wanted a diary. But like I said, I can't write. So they would never be able to read it. So <laughs> Facebook and pouring out my soul is always my diary to my kids. That's who it's for. It's always been my pictures. My, my life on Facebook and Instagram is that. And it's for my family, for my kids. Losing my mom so early and having a dad that was raised differently. Vietnam, Italian, machismo, very hard. I respect and love him. He made me who I am. But he wasn't that guy that was like, hey, you're the best. He was yeah. so hard on me. There was nothing I could do that could make that guy happy ever. It just didn't seem like I could do it. And now I realize like, wow, I did make him happy. I just never knew. Um, but I was like, that's not going to be me with my kids. And I'm going to value my children to a level that is beyond. It doesn't mean I'm not hard on them. I'm like my dad to them. I am extremely hard on them because I expect the best. But they are my everything in any way. And any legacy I have will be through them for them. And if they don't have to become a doctor, they don't become a lawyer, they have to become happy. Yeah. That's my rule. You become happy. If you're happy doing this, that is success. Okay? I want you happy. That's it. And yeah. my job is to do that. And that's where it's at. So family, you know, marrying my high school sweetheart, the girl I loved, I mean, I can't, listen, do we fight constantly? But we fight because she holds me accountable. 
I mean, she really does. Like, she don't let me get away with crap and I get annoyed by it. But like everyone else kind of like, Eric is this and he's funny and he's that. And she's like, shut up, just go do it. And I'm like, <laughs> you're so mean. But then I'm like, oh, she's kind of right, you know? And it's like weird how you got to go through that. Yeah. And it's funny because my daughter now, and I know you're going through the same thing. I can't believe what's happening to their brains and the <laughs> stuff they say. And the Dakota is like the voice of reason sometimes to me. So I'm like, what is going on? Crazy. How are you so smart? And how do you know these things? And it blows your mind. I know you know that, Mia. Oh um, God, totally. It's, it's blowing your mind. So my family and everything, it just became, it's my legacy. They will make me, you know, the most happy or the most sad. And everything I do in corporate world, leadership, anything, it's just to make sure that they're successful in life themselves. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've seen with you that you sort of, sort of have this instinct as a protector, right? You, you, you put your arms over everybody as an umbrella and you're just like, I got this. And, and I've seen you, and this, this is the tough part of like going over stuff like this. I've seen you go through tremendous trauma and loss. Dude, I don't know anybody that's uh, seriously, man. I don't know anybody that's gone through the kind of loss that you've gone through. You lost your mom uh, in 2002. Uh, your dad passed away in, in 2017. Your brother-in-law, Mike, our, our, our uh, fellow Daler, our, our classmate, your best friend, um, passed away also 2017, right? Yep. 2017. Um, yep. You know, other family members, like, um, man, like you guys have been through the ringer, but I just, I watch, and I know... Social media is, is just a small window into people's lives, but I genuinely believe what I see. You know what I see? You got, because you're always together no matter what. And that counts for something. Whether the whether the picture is bullshit or not, you guys were still together that time. And that that's what matters. And so, um, you know, a person like you that's gone through the stuff you've gone through, they could have really taken a different turn. Like, Big, big time. And you've sort of taken all that, you know, you take on that protector role. I don't know what the dynamic is with your family, with your brothers and sisters, but um, you seem to always just be there sort of trying to lead the way, uh, even though you're probably one of the younger ones. Um, yeah, 100%. And, 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 and protecting everybody and, so, and just making sure that they're all together you know, holidays and, and, and trauma and whatever, and just getting through, I know you guys go on vacation with your in-laws every year and, and your, your, bro, your younger brother-in-law is uh, amazing dude. He's been through so much as well. And, and you, you just always seem to be there for everybody. So what's that, you know, what does that dynamic feel like to you as sort of the, the person that's, um, I, I don't want to paint this in a way that looks bad to your family. I want to say like, it's not because of what they're looking for from you. It's because of what you in your own head decide, like, this is who I need to be. You go out there as like that umbrella, right, to cover everybody. What is that What is that like for you and how does your family react to that? Oh, they, they know. They know that I'm like that. My family's very much like that. Uh, my dad and mom are like that. I mean, my dad would, uh, like, I, you know, we didn't have money, but he would give money to people yeah. when we didn't have money. Like, that's, we watched it happen numerous times that he would give his money that we needed to somebody else. And uh, that's exactly how my parents were. So my entire family, every one of us is exactly the same. So you see it through my window and there are other friends that see it exactly the same through my brother's window and my other brother's window and my sister's yeah. window because we are all the same in that capacity. So my brothers and sisters, I'm not lying to you, are all the same. We all are there. That's why we're successful because we are all there for each other. Yeah. You know, and we all have this like ability, you know, this one thing that we all have like that we could do. Like my sister Amanda, she's the youngest one. She became this like mother 
Okay. And she's got this way and she's just everybody's best friend and never says no. And would drop, like would, would not go to a, a, she cancel a vacation to babysit my kids on a Wednesday, like, and not tell me that she did it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's insane. Yeah. And my sister Tracy's like this protector. My brother Thomas is a protector. My brother Victor in, in Florida, uh, you know, he, he's still that way where he is. And then, you know, my brother Kevin, he's like, Mr. Fix it. If something breaks in our house, we don't call anybody. We call Kevin. Yeah. And he's got to get there and he's got to fix it. So, yes. Um, so that is that. On, But for me, yes, that is 100% who I am in every aspect of life. And I think it's all of us because I figured out that just looking, like I said, we are, we derive our happiness from the happiness of others. I know it's crazy to think that, but we're not the rest of the world's view. I don't know how we got raised like this. I give my parents all the credit, and I don't know if it's everybody that way, but we derive our happiness from the happiness of others. And that's why my company, I mean, how could I be in a better job? Right. I mean, you know, like, that's why it just works. So that's how it is. And yes, is it hard sometimes? Does it feel like everything's on me sometimes? Do I feel like I'm letting people down sometimes, even though I've done a million things? And that's where Jen comes in handy. Yeah. Because she'll be like, what's wrong with you? You've done everything. <laughs> and I'm like, I know. So that's it. And I, I don't mind it. And I love it. And yes, family's great. So don't they won't feel bad because they're all the same person. Yeah. So we all have our good spots and our good points. That's I love good. that. I love that. Yeah. You said something once, uh, and I, I'll read the quote here. Uh, I have failed at times as a son, brother, father, uncle, nephew, cousin friend and significant other. I don't always say or do the right things. I'm not the most good looking man in the world, but I'm me. I love my family. I have scars because I have history. Some people love me. Some people like me. Some people who don't even know me don't like me. I've done good. I've done bad. I'm random, witty, silly, caring, selfless, hardworking. At times I can even be bipolar and vulgar, but I'm loving. I don't pretend to be someone I'm not. I am who I am. You can love me or not. If I love you, I do it with all my heart and I make no apologies for being me. That that's probably the most Eric statement I can say. Like just knowing you, like that's a hundred percent you, a hundred percent you. Yeah, um, that's awesome. I, I should read. I'm gonna repost that. That's uh, yeah. That, like I was like, wow, that guy wrote something good there. That's me. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, before we start wrapping up, I want to uh, pivot to one thing. <laughs> pivot, right? Uh, we're gonna pivot to the pandemic and the pivot yeah. in the pandemic. So you yeah. and I have been in close contact since the pandemic started, as two businessmen, uh, businessmen on Long Island, and entrepreneurs and people that you know employ others and and uh, need to look out for our own families and businesses. Um, this has been crazy, man. And I know in your industry specifically, man, did the event industry get murdered, murdered, murdered. Um, we had, uh, and I think you were part of this meet. Were you part of that call that I did like early on? You were. Yeah. I just, it. I had a quick early call with other business owners, like a state of the world. Like, what are we doing here? What let's help each yeah. other. You know, um, uh, talk to me about, um, you know, we know the, diff- the the business was just murdered. So there were many things you had to look at. One is the, the, uh, the I don't even want to use the word success. I want to use the word um, uh, stability and, and future of your business, right, a- as a whole. The other thing is the stability and future of your family, right? Um, and the third thing is the stability and future of those people that, you employ and take care of and, and the benefit from your business. So talk to me about what everything looked like when this all first happened and how the pivot sort of uh, happened for you guys. Um, okay. So 
just like uh pivot necessary just it just you have to stay alive and that's you know the thing so uh, this is going to be a little bit long but to get you the whole story you got to go a little bit back to go there um Berl, uh, berlin wall comes down my dad uh loses his job at grumman um terrible point in our lives but my dad collapsed you know after all these years losing a son going to vietnam all the stuff that was like the killer that was like the death blow it was crazy um and he just went into deep depression didn't leave his room gained weight didn't look for a job it was just bad and i remember it just being bad and we lost our house and all that stuff and i was like i'll never let that happen that's never going to happen to me and part of that chip on my shoulder and part of my hard work and part of my success was always like i'm not letting that happen to my kids and the sudden dread and heart i can't i can only tell you it came out of nowhere and it came back and it was deafeningly sickening it was and i i'm not i'm like my dad you know i seem like an open book but my wife wouldn't know if we had $2 or 10 million. She, that's, that's not, I don't let her handle those worries. So I know where I'm at and I'm going, what are we doing? How am I getting us through this? And because I'm so tuned into the upper 1%, I knew well ahead of most people, how deep and how long and how far the pandemic was going to go. And that two weeks was not necessarily what the, was the story. Right. And I knew it immediately. And I reached out to you. You reached out to me because you are my sounding board. And it's not blowing smoke up your ass. You're you you are more than a lifesaver in that regard of the last year for me, for anyone. And you you know people step up at certain points, but just being able to talk to you, bounce stuff off your ideas, talk to people I didn't know, come up with ideas, just amazing. Yeah. Um, so thank Appreciate you. It, man. But. So um, I realized quick, like we got to do some type of pivot and I'm not just letting this fail. And, you know, you start with these basic, it's like relearning. And I just, I wrote one day, I just, I kept on running every day outside. I mapped out on Google maps, my cul-de-sac and I figured out exactly what one mile was, how many times I had to run it. And then I would run it 12 times, 16 times, 22 times. I made a track in my, my, my neighbors must think I was crazy. And I put my earphones on and I just thought. And I don't do that a lot. And and then sometimes I just didn't think about anything. And I was like, how am I doing this? And I was like, okay, I'm gonna start doing social games and this game and that thing and this thing. And I never got rid of my staff. So I, I paid them anyway. I said, don't come to work, I'm paying. Um, and I just let them go through. And then I went, okay, I gotta get rid of you two because they're in the office and there's really no jobs for you and you'll go on unemployment, but I will go to this. And I started taking money for myself to get them. Then I started working on the PPPs. Then I saw the barriers and I saw the need for it. And then the Dawn and Amal story um, of how they worked in the hospital and how Amal was coming yep. back from, you know, 18 hour days. And then this poor doctor was trying to make this intubation box by himself on a, on a table. And you texted me and you put us together, of course. And you said, Eric might be able to help because I never saw this, the message. And because I was staying off of all social media and everything, I was just trying to keep my head in a good place. And, um, I wound up donating, you know, ten thousand uh, dollars with one of my partners' worth of intubation boxes to every hospital throughout the tri-state area, and I never felt more like a, um, I never felt more like a, uh, I guess you'd say like a drug dealer in my life because nurses and doctors were DMing me on Instagram, "Can I get one? I'll pay you anything," and I was like, "No one's paying me anything. You're trying to save the world here." Yeah. And you're trying to pay me $500 for a box that's going to save your life and a doctor's life. 
where are we at? So even in that world, I put that money up and I went to that and they say, no good deed goes unpunished, but that doesn't matter. Good deeds go forward because I did that and people shared it and put it everywhere. Coney Island hospital reached out to me and wanted me because they're doing this whole other side. They said, we could do it, but we don't want to do it because we have too much going on. Can you come here and make barriers for all our desks and everything? And that wound up getting my crew back on with the PPP and doing that. Then with the, this, uh, doing, you know, graduations and everything, Zoom and creating all those contents, then making the foam van, it started to get like, okay, I'll keep this rolling and I'll, and I'll get us to where we got to get to. And I was hoping it was September and then it was in September. Um, then it was backyard. And, you know, I just was a pivot across the board for everything. And it was a pivot out of, uh, I don't want to say desperation. It was a pivot out of what I was saying with my dad. I don't want my kids to look at me and all this time I've been teaching about leadership and being this and being that. And when the pandemic happened, my dad hunkered down, got under the covers and said, well, when it's out, let me know. So um, I just, that was my everyday wake up. And it, it started to show because uh, last two weeks, we have added 44 proposals into our system. Um, and I don't even have all my staff back. Now, they're not the jobs that they would be. And there's so many pandemics i start i made the safety protocols for my industry i just helped with them and then you know on my end for the extra entertainment and i put that in there all the barriers helping all the country clubs open i made all the barriers at a little bit more than cost just so the country clubs could open so i can get the people back there so they can have parties again um and then it just blew up and everybody's been calling me throughout it and everybody's been like you've been so good you've been so on top of it and that's what i said to you earlier about the leadership that i really realized that you know, this year was the year, you know, that I realized I'm not just saying I'm a leader. I absolutely am. And I'm leading people that I never thought would need leading yeah. in some regard. And I th- I have one, two just absolutely amazing partners that have been with me the whole way through this. Um, and I have a lot of partners, but two that I would tell you are just have been nothing but as good, if not stronger than me. And I look at them for strength and it's really been good. And our companies are going to come out stronger, better, faster, further. And I feel like in five years, you know, we'll be ahead of where we, we thought we would be. Um, obviously, we took some giant steps back last year and uh, this next year. And then, you know, maybe by 2022, 2023, we'll be good. And then by 2024, I, I plan on having my best year yet yeah. with all new protocols and all new everything. I, I love hearing that, man. And, and you actually, uh, I know you said it was going to be a long answer, but yeah. I, I love that you did that because one of my main questions was, and you really answered that question was, um, at what point, at what point did that trauma from being a kid just kick back in and go, oh, no, 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 not me, not me. You know, and that's that's there's so much in that. There's the competitive drive, there's the chip on the shoulder. I mean, this is this is stuff that from a psychological level, when you look at it, you don't want any of this kind of stuff. It's not always the healthiest thing. But damn it, it gets shit done, doesn't it? Yeah, it gets shit done. What's the rabbi? I, I I share it a lot. I wish I could remember his name, but he, he did the lobster. And it's my favorite uh, thing ever and a lobster. And I, I live by it and all of your listeners should live by it too. Um, so a lobster has the shell. So how does the lobster grow? Well, the shell doesn't grow with the lobster. So it goes through an extremely painful process and it has to shed the shell. And then it has no exterior and it could be killed. So it has to hide under a rock and it has to regrow a shell. And then it has a year to grow. 
if it never goes through the trauma and it never sheds its shell, it never grows. It just stays the same lobster for the rest of its life, but it has to do that. Um, and that all being said is exactly what trauma is. And it's a great way to look at it. And I hate trauma, but I use it to feed me. My dad passing away, my mom passing away, not growing up with the richest thing. I realize in every step of those ways that trauma has made me successful. And I kind of, it's almost like a little, uh, I don't want to say narcissistic would be me. I'm talking about like more like, it's almost like sadist a little bit. Like I don't mind my kids going through shit. I sometimes foster it and it's not to be mean and it's not to be an idiot. It's just to make sure that they know how to handle those situations. Yeah. I need them to go through it. And everyone that's listening needs to realize that if every time you fix the situation for your child, you're not fixing anything for them. You're only putting a bandaid for when you're not there and they won't be able to handle it. And if you're looking at the world right now, there's been a lot of band-aids put on a lot of children for a long time. We need to start letting the world have a little bit of trauma that they learn from. And when this stuff happens, they go straight. It's just that simple. And that's exactly what happened. There it is. Love it. Love everything that you did uh, during this pivot, man. I, I watched so many businesses. I tried helping as many as I could. You know, we went through our shit too, man. And we, we're even still now like, and, and you have to, you have to always know what's better for, for the future of the business, right? We're even still now trying to make decisions like, well, shit, should we downsize the office now because I'm still home work and everybody's remote? Like, do I really need to pay all that rent every month or whatever? You know, and these are decisions we have to make, uh, you know, as business owners, as, as we sort of pivot. And But the, the people that have really come out stronger are the people that did stuff like you did. I have a, a client. We, we, we know the, the Vespa restaurants, right? Elite, right? Elite Hospitality Group. Amazing. Vespa Amazing. and Harley's, Vespa Northport. The shit that we did. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll shout out Mike Lamonto. He's he's uh, the son of Ben Lamonto, who runs uh, Vesper. Good job, Florida. Mike. Mike in 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 Northport. Um, man, the stuff we worked on last summer. I mean, they did. And this is a high end Italian restaurant and steakhouse, and they were they did drive in movies twice a week. They did drive through brick oven pizza. They did everything, and the the place thrived. And now that everything's sort of getting back to normal, um, you know. People remember like, oh, this place was here during the hard times. They don't forget that. So, yeah. Uh, And I don't know if you guys ever wind up working together uh, when I have Joe. No, he, you know, we tried. He was awesome. He did something that was sick. And I told him that. And that was, you know, I will say this with with you as well. Me. um, I never expect anyone to work with me. And I always want everyone to make their best decision because I find that that really brings you further in life. So like I spoke with him, we did everything. I showed him, I'm like, yo, do it this way, do it that way. Because yo, if I, what happens if I make a little bit of money on him and then he can't keep Vespa open in yeah. Farmingdale? Right. I don't want that. You got to stay open. You got to get these country clubs open. You got to get all this open because once they're open, I'm open. I'm the last one open. Remember that last one to do events. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's move on to the big yeah. three. The big three from the launch cast. The big three, Eric, I'm going to call out a few things. You're going to give me your quick, concise top three for each thing. It's going to be just a few of them. Ready? All right. All right. Big three. Give me your top three favorite sports moments. I know you're a sports guy. Um, 
I mean, 86 Mets 86 winning Mets. championship. I, I mean, I on it. my eighth birthday, how could it not be? Mookie um, and the whole I, thing, right. Uh, Mookie, game <laughs> six. I mean, I have it, my, my stuff up everywhere. If I turn the screen around, my son's name, Carter. I mean, Car- come on, that's one. It's got to be one. Um, I think that number two, which, because it doesn't, you know, really help me would be, uh, you know, I just think that the dream team in 92 just changed the world. Um, and I don't think people realize what the dream team did for the world in general in sports. And it's not even my top moment, but it should be a top moment in the world. And then I was, I was two, but it just is, it's another one. I mean, you got to tell the 1980 Olympics, you know, the hockey, the fact that they went and, you know, beat the Russians. It was like, it was kind of like the cold war was over. Like you, we got college kids beating your uh, pros, buddy. And it was just the end. And that was those three, those three are the top moments that I could look back at, even though I didn't necessarily see them that way at the time or didn't see it at all. Those are my three. Okay. Give me your top three. I know this is going to be tough. This is almost like telling me your favorite kids, but Three favorite games or or event you know displays that you've ever created. Your top. Okay, three. all right, all right. I'm not okay. I'm gonna do it differently for you because okay. yes, I mean the car. The car is sick. My end of night stations, my candy stores that are real stores that people see. That's all ridiculous. But there's so many uh, genres. I'm gonna tell you my party that put me on the map. 2005 Memorial Day weekend. I'm this kid trying to make my way through. Had a client literally booked the entire uh, Jersey Shore out for whole cl- for whole thing. I think about that. In her venue, she she used it for just cocktail hour, and she did an entire New Orleans old world and a New Orleans new world. And we made everybody check in like they were going to an airport. They all got luggage. There was fake pilots there, fake pickpockets there, fake stuff. There was a whole. Uh, food court up top and there was a whole gates station in the the bottom that was just for cocktail hour. They then all walked through a fuselage of a plane and there was uh, airplane footage on the outside. They were in Hawaii. They got across two tons of sand that we put down into a tent that looked like they were in Hawaii with a DJ spinning out of a volcano and huts and all that stuff. And during that time they came back to the old one and they were in a new New Orleans version. So that party was the sickest thing ever. It put me on the map. And then all my games are sick. Go to Instagram. You'll see it. It's outrageous. His games are sick, sick, sick. Go to his Instagram. Uh, again, what really cool games. Share. I'm trying to rebrand, by I the know, way. It should be CGI at this point. Yeah, we're 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 gonna put all of those links in the show notes uh on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and, and Pandora and all all the places. Um three proudest. I don't want to say moments. No, I'm going to change your three proudest accomplishments in your life. And you can count the kids as one, by the way. Okay. Kids one, uh, getting Jen back, which was a goal. That's an accomplishment. It was great. Um, and then making creative games successful. Yeah. That's three great accomplishments. Last one. Three biggest lessons that you've learned in life. Um, know what you don't know. Don't be scared to ask those questions. Know what you don't know. Most most people always just want to say, I know, I know, I know. And that is the stupidest thing you could say because you don't know and you won't learn. So know what you don't know is one. Um, trials and tribulations, man. They're not the worst thing in the world. As you're going through them, know there is another side and know that you will learn something from it. Something good will come of it as bleak as it seems at the time. And then uh, number three, and I hope you all live by this, uh, you know, happiness not, not, not doing everything that makes you happy, but happiness is should be your ultimate goal in anything you do. It shouldn't be your bank account. It shouldn't be, you know, what house you live in, what car you drive or what friends uh, you're, you're with or where you go eat. 
It needs to be the company you keep, the, the character of your soul, not the character that you like other people to have, the character of your soul. And, uh, you know, that will lead you to a very successful, happy life. Um, so just remember that. Get Stop chasing the paper, man. It'll come if you do all the other stuff first. I love it. I love it. Two things I want to say before we go, and then I'm going to throw you into the green room so I can uh, do my outro, and then we'll say goodbye. Um, two things I want to say. One is, one is the comeback, everybody. The comeback is coming. The comeback, I've been waiting all this last year to say this, but I see it. I see it for everybody. I just, right here, I'm in pain. I got my first vaccine yesterday. The comeback is coming. Watch out for the people in this club, and that includes me and this guy right here. The comeback is coming, and the product and the service will be better than ever, and it is going to reinvent the world. Watch out for these guys and see what they're going to do when everything starts opening up again. I'm excited to see it. And the next thing is I'm going to give you a little gift here. I was going to use this little piece of content as part of the interview, but I came up with an idea. So this is, you know, I, I also have a marketing agency. I came up with this. This little thing popped in. I was reading what your mom wrote in your yearbook, right? I know you ah. posted that a while back, right? Here's the comeback marketing campaign, CGI. And this comes from a line your mom wrote. Let's turn the lights back on and make life fun again. There you go. Oh, wow, that's campaign. pretty sick. And dude. this comes from when your mom said, even when I know that in your eye, that uh, even when I know you are hurting inside, I can see the twinkle in your eye that turns the light on in your head to make life fun again. Taking you to yeah. school after all these years, my friend. She is crazy, man. That, and that is exactly, she knew. I said she knew me better than you could imagine, man. Crazy. So Probably. right. That is sick. That is a great term. I love that you ended on that. You're the man. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. you. Hang on two seconds. I'll say goodbye. Yes. Uh, how do I do this? Man, I got to make these overlays quicker. <laughs> there it is. Guys, another episode of the LaunchCast. Ooh, I'm so fucking jazzed up to be back to interviews again. Sorry for the curse, Mia, as she's doing homework over there. Um, Monday, every single Monday, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, IR. We're everywhere, goddammit, and we're not going anywhere. The LaunchCast continues next week with another interview and another and another, and watch out for the Over My Dad podcast. Guys, we'll see you later. Into the black Thanks for listening to the LaunchCast today. Please make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available. Follow me, George Andriopoulos, at Launchpad CEO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And make sure to visit our website, guys, thelaunchcast.com. Looking forward to the next episode. See you soon, guys.